Um, I really appreciate you coming this morning, and this topic, in my opinion, really couldn't be more cr critical. Um, the, this will become apparent. I've chosen two videos. One is five minutes long, and it is by um, a uh, man named Tristan Harris, and he worked at Facebook, Facebook um, for a while, so he really understands, and he was in their tech department um, doing the work that he's going to be describing. Um, however, he uh, has grave concerns about it now um, and is asking important ethical questions about how social media in particular, um, but it's not just social media, how it, it is being used and what's happening to us physiologically and therefore emotionally, psychologically, and everything else. Um, when we are using the internet, our cells, phones, social media, and other things. So Tristan Harris, if you're interested in this topic, he's a great one to look up and explore. The other is a, a longer video, about 13 minutes or so, that includes Tristan Harris, but other speakers as well, that gives a more, that gives a bit of a broader scope of some of the problems. Um, so I'm going to get started with that. Afterwards, I'm going to add a few little pieces that aren't included here, not, not a lot, and then we'll have some conversation about it. Um, one thing I want to sort of preset is that I've noticed sometimes when we begin to talk about the internet, social media, and cell phones, it quickly devolves into a generational criticism as if our children or our grandchildren are the only ones for whom these are genuinely problems when that's absolutely not the case. Um, there are actually particular vulnerabilities for our kids and grandkids that would not have been the case for, is anybody younger than Generation X? I, I don't think so. Um, so our age and above um, would not have been affected in all the same ways simply because our use of cell phones and the internet came after a certain developmental period. Um, but that's not true for any generation, including some of Generation X. So anyway, I just don't want us to think, oh, those kids today, that's not what this is about. <laughs> this is about, oh no, we are living in a new world mm -hmm. and we haven't figured this part out yet, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, pray with me. Uh, the internet's been working perfectly well this morning. I hope it continues to do so. One thing we don't talk about is that um, it's sort of hard to talk about this. Our, our minds have these kinds of backdoors. There's just, there's kind of, if you're a human and you wake up and you open your eyes, there is a certain set of dimensions to your experience that can be manipulated. When I was a kid, uh, I was a magician, and you learn all about these limits, you know, that short-term memory is about this long, and there's different reaction times, and if you ask people certain questions in certain ways, you can control the answer. And this is just the structure of being human. To be human means that you are persuadable in every single moment. I mean, the thing about magic, as an example, is that magic works on everybody. Sleight of hand, right? It doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, it's not about what someone knows, it's about how your mind actually works. So knowing this, it turns out that 
uh, there's this whole playbook of persuasive techniques that actually I learned when I was at the Stanford uh, Persuasive Technology Lab, and that most people in Silicon Valley in the tech industry learned as ways of getting your attention. So one example um, is we are all vulnerable to social approval. We really care what other people think of us. So for example, you know, when you upload a new photo, a new profile photo of yourself on Facebook, uh, that's a moment where our mind is very vulnerable to knowing what other people think of my new profile photo. And so when we get new likes on our profile photo, Facebook knowing this could actually message me uh, and, and say, oh, you have new likes on your profile photo. And we, it knows that we'll be vulnerable to that moment because we all really care about when we're tagged in a photo or when we have a new profile photo. And the thing is that they control the dial, the technology companies control the dial for when and how long your profile photo shows up on other people's news feeds. So they can orchestrate it so that other people more often end up liking your profile photo over a delayed period of time, for example, so that you end up uh, having to more frequently come back and see what the new likes are, right? And the problem is that they don't do this because they're evil. They do it because, again, they're in this race for our attention. And we should also ask, is that necessarily such a bad thing? If they're orchestrating it so that other people uh, like my, my photo, I mean, that might feel good to me. But So we have to have a new conversation about as these technology companies use these techniques, these vulnerabilities in our minds, uh, when is that actually aligned and good for us? When is that ethical? When is that uh, honest? When is that fair? And when is that dishonest and unfair? Because they're actually manipulating our minds in a way that doesn't add up to our spending our time well uh, on the screen. Well, so another vulnerability in our mind is something called a variable schedule reward. And that's like a slot machine in Las Vegas. It turns out that slot machines make more money in the United States than baseball, movies, and theme parks combined. People become addicted to slot machines. Uh, I think it's two to three times faster than any other kind of gambling in a casino. So it's, it's insane. And why is that? Because it's very simple. You just pull a lever, and sometimes you get a reward, you know, and sometimes you don't. And the more random it is, and the more variable it is, uh, the more addictive it becomes. And the thing is that that turns our phone into a slot machine. Because every time we check our phone, we're playing the slot machine to see, what did I get, right? Every time that we um, check our email, we're, we're playing the slot machine to see, what did I get? Did I get invited to an interview at Big Think, or did I just get another newsletter, right? Um, or if you're on a dating site like Tinder, and when you're swiping, each swipe is you're playing the slot machine to see, did I get a match? I'm playing the slot machine to see, did I get a match? And the problem is that this dynamic, these variable schedule rewards, or the slot machine mechanic, is so powerful that it's the, it's the best thing in addicting people and, and putting you in the zone. Um, one of the original designers of the Facebook newsfeed told me that um, the thing that made the newsfeed work at the very, very, very beginning, back in 2006, um, was in part a hardware innovation. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? And she said it was actually the, the scroll wheel on a mouse. Because with the scroll wheel on a mouse, your hand never had to leave its resting position. You just scroll to see the next thing. And the, because before that, you had to click on the down button or drag, move your mouse and drag the arrow down and scroll the page that way. Well, you don't, you can take your two fingers on a trackpad and do this, or you can just scroll on a scroll wheel. 
It just means your hand never has to leave its resting position, and it's more like a slot machine. You can just keep swiping and playing, just like in Vegas with a button right there. They actually changed it, in fact. It used to be a lever, and now it's just a button in Vegas because it found it's easier just to get people to, to see if they get a match this way. So how much on our phones, when we use our technology, Instagram is like a slot machine. What's going to come next on the feeds? You know, Snapchat is a slot machine. Each time you see the red notifications uh, and you don't know what's behind it, you're playing the slot machine when you click on it to see what did I get, right? And so it's, it's sprinkled all throughout these products because it's a very compelling way of getting people's attention. So it's interesting, you see how there was that pop-up there yeah. at the end um, that shows you what's coming next? This is actually another one of the innovations, and I, I think they talk about it in the next video, but if by some chance they don't, I'm going to talk about it too. Um, so just keep it in mind when we're, when we're looking at the next thing. I don't want to say anything in my browser. Um, this one's a little more dramatically filmed, if you will. So consider that. Consider, even though they're not going to talk about this, um, how you probably already know that music, you know, um, and other forms of uh, like flashes, or you know, if they want to be um, to suggest that something's really bad, they might take a color photo and suddenly throw it to black and white and then pull it back. Right? There are these. Um, techniques that aren't even part of this particular discussion, um, which, by the way, I think they, they do use to keep you watching. <laughs> so you're dealing with an addictive generation. This, this is a big time bomb ticking. This is no accident. It, Oops, sorry. Indeed, it is by design. I mean, seriously? It was by design. I mean, I think we can all feel it. To try to make these products as addictive as possible. Spike in dopamine. There's a point where they know that many of the social media it will companies go away hire individuals called attention engineers who borrow principles from Las Vegas Casino Gambling, among other places, to try to make these products as addictive as possible. That is the desired use case of these products, is that you use it in an addictive fashion because that maximizes the profit that can be extracted from your attention and data. It literally is a point now where I think we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. That is truly where we are. The way the technologist Darren Lanier puts it is that these companies offer you shiny treats in exchange for minutes of your attention and bytes of your personal data, which can then be packaged up and sold. What happened is that the attention economy and this race for attention got more and more competitive. And the more competitive it got to get people's attention on, say, a news website, the more they need to add these design principles, these more manipulative design tactics, as ways of holding on to your attention. You don't realize it, but you are being programmed. Social media tools are designed to be addictive. The actual design, desired use case of these tools is that you fragment your attention as much as possible throughout your waking hours. That's how these tools are designed to use. Well, we have a growing amount of research which tells us that if you spend large portions of your day in a state of fragmented attention, so large portions of your day where you're constantly breaking up your attention, take a quick glance, but just check and just quickly look at Instagram, that this can permanently reduce your capacity for concentration. I'm especially worried about this when we look at the younger generation coming up, which is the most saturated in this technology. It's very addictive because if you pull on the slot machine or enough, you will win. You never know which pull will reward you. 
That's an addictive behavior, and it's dopamine that is driving that addiction. So what happens with social media is Robert Spolsky, who did the foundational research on this at Stanford, calls it the magic of maybe. When you look at your phone and maybe there's a text there, maybe there's not, and you don't know when it shows up, that high you get, that's dopamine. It's the magic of maybe. Maybe it'll be there, maybe it won't. When it shows up, you get a 400% spike in dopamine. That is roughly the same amount of dopamine as you're getting from cocaine, slightly less than an extremely addictive drug like cocaine. And that's what's happening. We really care what other people think of us. So for example, you know, when you upload a new photo, a new profile photo of yourself on Facebook, uh, that's a moment where our mind is very vulnerable to knowing what other people think of my new profile photo. And so when we get new likes on our profile photo, Facebook knowing this could actually message me uh, and, and say, oh, you have new likes on your profile photo. And we, it knows that we'll be vulnerable to that moment because we all really care about when we're tagged in a photo or when we have a new profile photo. And the thing is that they control the dial, the technology companies control the dial for when and how long your profile photo shows up on other people's news feeds. So they can orchestrate it so that other people more often end up liking your profile photo over a delayed period of time, for example, so that you end up uh, having to more frequently come back and see what the new likes are. And it's literally what we're bringing in social media, the challenges, you know, with these terms like Facebook depression and everything, because it's bad. This is social media depression because where it's everyone's looking at their feed and they're comparing their lives to other people, their highlights of other people's lives. Wow. And there's actually less satis life satisfaction, more sadness, depression, and stuff like that. And it's interesting because if you think about things like things that you know routinely produce a lot of dopamine, alcohol, for example, there's a drinking age, right? We have a drinking age. Alcohol releases a whole lot of dopamine, it makes you feel really, really good. We say, okay, you can have that, but you've got to wait. You've got to be 21 years old. We don't do that with social media. We're, you know, essentially putting highly addictive drugs into the hands of kids before they have any natural defenses against them. And what you're seeing with internet addiction, with social media addiction, is the same thing over and over. It's people trying to change their state of consciousness with a device trying to get at the underlying neurochemical chemistry and it's very, very addictive. So I would say the problem with the gadgets, I mean, they're amazing things, is that they interfere with, they approximately interfere with medium to long-term goals, I would say. And so I think the first thing you have to do to bring them under control is figure out what it is that their use is interfering with. It has to be something important. So you think, well, I, I, I want to do something important. What is that? Oh, it could be personal. Maybe you want to have a relationship. You want to get married. You want to have kids. You want to have a career that's meaningful. You, know, you want to have a life. You, you want to have an Abrahamic adventure and be the father of nations, let's say. Well, you can't be ratting away on your cell phone and doing that. And so I think, I think part of it is to set your sights high and make a plan and figure out who you could be and see if obsessive utilization of smartphone fits into that vision of nobility. And it will partly because they're, they're unbelievably powerful communication devices, but so so often it's, it's for lack of something better to do and it also interferes. You know, imagine like when you take that to the extreme where you know, bad actors can now manipulate large swaths of people. 
do anything you want. It's just a, it's a really, really bad state of affairs. And we compound the problem, right? We curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. And instead, what it really is, is fake, brittle popularity. That's short-term and that leaves you even more, and admit it, vacant and empty before you did it. Because then it forces you into this vicious cycle where you're like, what's the next thing I need to do now? Because I need it back. Think about that compounded by two billion people. And then think about how people react then to the perceptions of others. It's just a, it's a really bad. So we know from the research literature that the more you use social media, the more likely you are to feel lonely or isolated. We know that the constant exposure to your friends' carefully curated positive portrayals of their life can leave you to feel inadequate and can increase rates of depression. And something I think we're going to be hearing more about in the near future is that there's a fundamental mismatch between the way our brains are wired and this behavior of exposing yourself to stimuli with intermittent rewards throughout all of your waking hours. So it's one thing to spend a couple hours at the slot machine in Las Vegas, but if you bring a slot machine with you and you pull that handle all day long from when you wake up to when you go to bed, we're not wired from it. It short circuits the brain, and we're starting to find that it has actual cognitive consequences, one of them being this sort of pervasive background hum of anxiety. Here's the thing. The world we live in isn't real. Social media isn't real. And by design, social media rewards us for showing our best life. The edited, posed, champagne, Michelin star, holiday, orchestrated best angle of our life. The highlight reel. But you don't ever see real life. The 99% of our lives. The behind the scenes, the unglamorous, unfiltered, day-to-day, -day bland normality. And you end up comparing your behind the scenes to other people's fake highlight reel and using others as a mirror or benchmark for how you should look, how successful you should be, or how you should live. These fake comparisons will only serve to make you feel inadequate and inferior to something that isn't even real. Research continually shows that comparing your life to someone else's creates envy, low self-confidence, low self-esteem, and depression. You compare yourself to other people every single day, consciously or subconsciously, and no matter what I say, you're not going to stop because comparing one thing to another is a natural human thing to do. Whether we want to admit it or not, a big reason why anything has value is because there's something worse or better to compare it to. Think about it. An old brick of a mobile phone with a big aerial is only considered amazing in a world before the smartphone. The horse and carriage is only considered a phenomenal mode of transport until the car comes along. The answer isn't to stop making comparisons, because unfortunately we can't control that. But you have to change the object of your comparison. From someone else to yourself. You have to measure yourself against yourself. And by doing this, you start at a base point where you consider yourself to be perfectly fine exactly how you are. But it also is the most effective, motivating, and healthy way to work to improve yourself. You'll become your happier self when you stop putting pressure on yourself to be more like someone else, and when you start comparing real to real. We are in a really bad state of affairs right now, in my opinion. It is, 
It is eroding the core foundations of how people behave by and between each other. Um, and I don't have a good solution. You know, my solution is I just don't use these tools anymore. I haven't for years. It's created huge tension with my friends, huge tensions in my social circles. Um, if you look at like, you know, my Facebook feed, I probably have, I've posted maybe two times in seven years, three times, five times, just, it's less than 10. Um, and it's weird, I guess I kind of just innately didn't want to get programmed. And so I just turned, tuned it out, but I didn't confront it. And now to see what's happening, it's really, it really, it really bums me out. Back in the 1970s, in the early 80s, uh, at Xerox Park, when Steve Jobs first went over and saw the graphical user interface, the way people talked about the computers, the computers by was uh, a bicycle for our minds. That um, here we are, you used to take a human being, and they have a certain set of capacities and capabilities. And then you give them a bicycle, and they can go to all these new distances. They're empowered to go to these brand new places and to do these new things, to have these new capacities. And um, that's always been the philosophy of people who make technologies. How do we uh, create bicycles for our minds to do and empower us to feel and, and access more? Now, when the first iPhone was introduced, it was also the philosophy of these technologies. How do we empower people to do something more? And, what, and in those days, it wasn't manipulative because there was no competition for attention. Photoshop wasn't trying to maximize how much attention it took from you. It didn't measure its success that way. Um, and the internet overall had been, in the very beginning, uh, not designed to maximize attention. It was just a putting things out there, putting things out there, creating these message boards. It wasn't designed with this whole persuasive psychology that emerged later. If you feed the beast, that beast will destroy you. If you push back on it, we have a chance to control it, rein it in. And it is a point in time where people need to hard break from some of these tools and the things that you rely on. The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. And it's not an American problem. This is not about Russian ads. This is a global problem. Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um, Hi everyone. <laughs> Everybody feeling cheerful and happy now? Um, let me mention a couple of other things and then we're going to have conversation. Um, as I mentioned in the interim uh, space, the, one of the pieces of the puzzles, the, the overwhelming piece of the puzzle that has driven so much of the deeply problematic side of how the internet and social media and other things. Um, <laughs> Neil, this might be a really awkward point to catch up. Good luck. Come on in. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> All the data has been dis distributed. You know, distributed. Um, is that originally, as they were saying there at the end, these were tools. Um, and they were intended as tools. 
uh, and they were not competing for your attention. Now in every sphere, of pretty much everywhere, um, I think many of us uh, might feel it quite keenly when we're trying to get news, for example. And our news sources have to compete with a, an incredible array, not just in the United States, but from around the world. We're all, they're all competing, as they say, for those eyeballs. And um, so they have to do psychological techniques that will hopefully give them a little bit of attention at the very same time that funding streams for the work that they do have been vastly reduced. So there are a number of techniques. Um, first of all, the, the spin on, um, towards negative news because our sense of outrage and our sense of um, what we remember and what we pay attention to is much more attuned psychologically to negative news than it is to anything positive. Not only do we remember it longer, we interact with it more. So that's why you hear about the quote-unquote outrage machine. The reason is that pretty much anybody, including people who want to do good things, they have to use some sort of tool to steal attention from everything else and somehow create revenue at the same time in a, you know, whereas once we might have paid, you know, a, a certain amount of money to the New York Times and that was one of our main funding sources, now they're getting pennies on that and, you know, they're competing with nine jillion other sources. And people, I don't know if you've noticed this, but because the pressure on writers is so extreme, um, they've reduced editors everywhere, so they're not editing the work, it's not grammatically correct, it's not spelled right, but it also might not be properly sourced. When you're trying to go so quickly, you don't have time to vet your sources in the way that we used to have those sources vetted. So, so that it's this cascading range of problems, and then they have to use tools like, um, he mentioned the scrolling one where they discovered that even the act of pulling a lever will, it will have less interaction than if somebody can just sit there and go, punk, 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 punk. Um, when, who, they say who did it first, I think it was Facebook who did it first. They discovered, nope, Facebook had to interact later. Um, someone discovered that if they wanted to, YouTube fig figured it out first, keep people on the site, which is their goal, that's how they get their advertising dollars, they would autoplay the next video. Yes. You didn't have to choose it, it just started autoplaying and you have to opt out if you don't want to watch the next video. So the next, the people who saw that next were Netflix. They were like, well crap, um, we better use that tool. So now they play the, they autoplay the next episode and, and they wait five, six episodes and then they're like, are you still watching? Um, so after that, that's when Facebook realized that they would need to autoplay any video in its thread. So you don't have to click on it anymore if it scrolls in and anybody who's done this in bed and has somebody sleeping next to them knows, you know, you might be reading people's threads and all of a sudden somebody's a cat is singing and you're like, oh no, I'm depressed. Um, so there are all of these uh, techniques to keep you there. Um, with kids, as they, they're, you know, again, very briefly treated, um, there are kids now who, who have never had their brains be developed in a space outside of using technology. And while there are, there are a, a vast number of 
beautiful and positive things that the internet and technology and everything else has brought us. And that is 20 conversations completely on its own, but I do want to underscore it. There is a lot that is profoundly positive about the tools that we've developed. What, what is coming to bear quite quickly, I think, is um, that we have an unethical, and by that I mean it lacks ethics because those ethics are not being applied. And we might not even know what ethics to apply. It's a, it's a developing field. And, um, and it is corroding things like our ability to think through things. Um, I remember when I noticed, um, I, I've been the person you know, who can sit, when I was, um, did my summers, I would get a stack of books and literally I would read from the time I woke up and ate my breakfast until I went to bed. And I could just do that all day. And I would go through books and books and books. Um, now, especially because I'm a student again, I do need to sit down and apply my attention to quite um, dense material. And what I'll notice is, this is, I'll sit down, I'll read for 10 minutes, I need a glass of water, I'm gonna get a glass of water. Sit down and read, oh, but did I answer that email? And I'm like hopping up a hundred times. And it, I have to go through about a half an hour process of realizing, right, your attention has been attenuated neurologically by devices, so when you want to get up, you need to stop, breathe, and return to your reading because I have to rewire my brain in order to sit for long periods of time. Hopefully many of you are not in that situation, but if you are, be aware of that, that will just increase over time. Um, so let me just stop there. You've heard a lot of material, those of you who, who got to see the videos. If you didn't see the videos and you want to, let me know and I'll send them to you. Um, I also mentioned at the outset that there's this NATO report because NATO has actually been studying this um, because it was it preceded the um, Russian interference by some significant amount of time. But one of the things that NATO started with was they were looking at, does everybody know about Twitter and bot activity? Are you familiar, are these terms familiar at all? If not, let me not assume that they are. So um, there are ways that you can automate um, tweets, you know, with people, either, you, sometimes they're people, but mostly it's just an automated system that pretends to be a person and sends out the same information. And Twitter has <laughs> had to go through this aggressive process of continuously changing their, um, basically their security protocols to try to filter out as many of those as possible. But no matter how much change they do, the, the, the folks who want to get around those are, you know, they're going back and forth. They're either a step ahead or a step behind and quickly get in front of it. Um, but NATO had noticed some very weird action around the Baltics. Um, some people were just suddenly um, tweeting about the Baltics. And it was like, why are there like three million people tweeting about the Baltics all the time? Well, it's because they were bots and because bad faith actors were trying to shape policy and um, political power in, in the Baltics and everything. So, so it is... Um, <laughs> It's a huge problem and opting out of social media may, or, or various forms of media and how we use our cell phones might help 
any one of us as individuals, but it won't solve the larger problem that we share as a social group. So let me move this. And um, as I said at the outset, let's be very cautious not to see this as a those young people problem, but rather as a shared problem that we all have. I'm curious, what are you thinking? What strikes you? What? Um, and if you have thoughts on things that might help or ways we might design ethics, I think everybody would love to really be part of that conversation. So let me open the floor. Yes, Mary. Well, I, I don't activate it or I turn off, <clears throat> I turn off notifications. Um, so I'm not doing it all day long, uh, fortunately. But even what I am doing, maybe an hour a day, uh, some days not. Uh, I've noticed, um, I've been attributing it to aging, you know, a little more difficulty focusing. And maybe it's not just aging, maybe my mind has been hacked mm -hmm. too much and I've my, have been rewired a bit. Mm -hmm. And I am having more trouble with um, uh, long attention, you know, focus. Mm -hmm. And it is getting in my way. Yeah, yeah. it's huge. Um, I'm 73, and I have a 22-year-old and a 26-year-old that have been living with me from like five to seven years, and maybe longer for the older one. And they'll be in the living room, and they are totally, totally separate from the other. I mean, I know sometimes I want to see what the next thing is coming, but nothing like with, with the younger uh, version. And the older one gets depressed a lot. She had something with makeup where people were following her. She had like 10,000 people following her right up on what this makeup is like, if it's good or bad or different. I'm like, oh my God. So you just named a really positive part of the internet because there are new ways that people can um, make money or have a job by being a social influencer, right? Um, but, but again, I want to be very careful. I don't want it to be like, um, the younger generation is... No, but I'm uh, saying I don't think of that as necessarily positive. I think that that's almost scary in a way because she's excited about the fact, look at all these people that are following me. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a... So that to me is, is not healthy. I hear you. There is this very fine line between the brittle false popularity, which by the way can turn on you quite quickly, um, and a you know, a meaningful job, basically. So I, I hear you. Yes, Thomas. Um, it's, it's funny because like I'm watching this, but I'm also coming because like being an English teacher, like I've, I've taught about this. Um, and I'll, one of the things that I teach my kids is always look for the archetype, like when you're analyzing things. Um, so I, I see this and yeah, it looks different now, and I think the intensity is different now. But this is very much the same as, like, for example, I'm like halfway through network. You know, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And a lot of the things that he's complaining about in that film, you find now. Um, and then I also teach. Um, I've also taught like the difference between. Like, you know, the, what would be considered the media, right? Um, paintings, 
um, versus like, so first PowerPoint is like the Rubenesque paintings that you find pre, you know, um, and then pre a certain era, then, you know, you have Twiggy, right? Mm -hmm. To which, like the female body image at that particular point with like a lot of bulimia and all these other things that were going on. And it was funny because like, the young man said something that was, I think was very archetypal to like the whole thing, um, despite the time period, mm -hmm. right? He was saying that um, this idea of like comparison, like value. So you have comparative value versus intrinsic value, you know, when it comes to yourself. And he was talking about the fact that you should go towards comparing yourself versus yourself. You know, and in the 1970s, if you're if a young female is comparing herself to Twiggy, right, then even though you know there's nothing wrong with your body, right, it's just like I don't look like her, right. So that, like there's this, and and what happens is oh the other PowerPoint was between the Rubenesque and the Twiggy was um, Marilyn Monroe. And that was like, like, like the grant, the glamour. Yeah. So I was ex explaining to them that like art, prior to being connected, pri art prior to being connected to commercialism, is all the paintings that you see when you walk through a museum, right? Especially the nudes, right? And then you have the art connected to commercialism which is the 1950s and, the, and you have to like emerge from the bedroom looking glamorous like you know all these women do and your brain doesn't connect the fact that this is a model the only she's got and yeah if you had 18 people working on your makeup prior to coming you know but it sold makeup right and then with the Twiggy, it sold fashion, it sold all these other things. So I think a lot of that is, you know, saying like, if the lesson is like, okay, what I see out there is just to sell me, you know? And yeah, like I think there's a lot, a good message in the idea of comparing yourself with yourself, pull back into the reality of actual existence. Yeah, exactly. And, and one thing that was was true throughout, especially your examples, but not explicit, is they were almost always white. Mm. And it wasn't even until the 80s that you would see in most popular formats people of, in advertising specifically, unless it was community-based, of people who weren't white, basically. Um, and rich, yes. Well, I, I feel very, very, very strongly about this. Uh, I mean, as a matter of fact, it's, all, it almost, it's upsetting me to, to be reminded of how strongly I feel. Uh, <coughs> the, the biggest thing is the way that all of this has gotten in the way of human relationships. It's horrible. And as a matter of fact, another thing which is a little bit connected to this is the fact that now that, that there's Amazon and you can order everything online, people don't have the, the interactions that they used to have in stores 
in department stores and small stores. So even that has, has happened. And I want, I want to mention something, that I joined Facebook about seven years ago, and I hated it. And I couldn't get off it. I had to go to the New York Public Library and get a book, and it took me about an hour to get off it. Interesting, right? Right. <laughs> About how to actually really deactivate your account. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. They, they really have you by the... <laughs> yeah. Sarah. Yeah, I would say one point in favor of Facebook is if there's breaking news, Facebook will have it because the person on the scene will post it. So they'll have it before the New York Times will or whatever. Twitter but, is actually quicker than Facebook. Okay. <laughs> now, I, don't, I never signed up for any of these. I'll take, I go to library classes in them because I want to know what's going on. I'm taking a senior planet class in Facebook now. And it just and I'm not opening an account. I'm giving a student account to just a fake account to fiddle around with. But it's so hard to figure out where how to navigate and where to click and it's there's a line up here, it's things to do with here. Um, I just don't think I ever want to be on any of that stuff. Yeah. Well, let me let me pause because we are breaking down a little bit into what I was hoping we could steer clear of, which oh. is the generational um, differences. And and I, if if we take, I just want to reiterate that there there really is this whole positive sphere of space where social media can add value, can b develop relationship, can help. You, if you're worried about a situation that's happening, maybe there's gun violence as there so often is, and you'd like the the quickest there are some social media avenues that will keep you in real time as it as it were but having said that if the if if we can agree and I'm not sure we all do but let's imagine let's see if we agree that the problem is not <coughs> individual it's not personal it's not whether I am addicted and thus my attention is attenuated and you know I have all these problems as a result of social media but that we as a community you named the, the reduction in time <coughs> that we have with um, strangers and um, unknown neighbors, Absolutely. which adds to civility, right? Because when I encounter you in a fairly neutral space, if I behave poorly, that really is, it, it's quite the, uh, you know, the reflection <coughs> of me, and we would have had, bless you, um, uh, sort of a cultural norm of being like, that's bad behavior. Now what we see in, is that while the bad behavior that we see on the internet, very common, and some people literally make a living off of being cruel on the internet, um, the, those qualities of interaction steer into the public sphere. So, and people capture them on their devices, which means we're all exposed to it. So if, if in the United States in 1950, there were 10 incidents where people were complete jerks to a store clerk. We wouldn't know about it. We might know if, it, if we happened to be there for one hour, right? right? You okay? <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Coming in for the cold. Okay. It is, it's been really breezy outside, too. Um, the, uh, now we, know, we probably are going to know about all 10 because we saw them on the internet and then we saw a hundred people say, look at this jerk, they're the most terrible human on earth. Mm -hmm. and, and so we are affected by that quality and we imagine, in fact, I will say the Washington Post has a very good article today that I hope people will read about how 
because the negative and outrage um, is part of the psychological mechanism of keeping people keeping people's attention, the fact that the world is actually doing pretty well is going completely missed, and people are absolutely uninformed about it. So, by the way, this is the Washington Post about that. Yeah. I just want to mention that it was really hard for me to stop talking to people on the telephone years ago, and all of a sudden people texted. Yeah. And I would say to somebody, oh, I'm going to call you. I think this is something that warrants a call. Where I would actually feel like, you know, and I'm supposed to be texting, but I want to hear that person's voice. Yeah. It started back then, in a way, for us, losing that, that connection of just the conversation and that you could hear someone as opposed to what they're writing. Mm -hmm. That was big. Yeah, I hear you say that. Mm -hmm. um, slightly to the side of this, I think um, it's really hard to think to step back and see it systemically like we're talking about and I thought they were kind of getting at that. Um, I <laughs> I'm old enough to have been present, you know, when people when uh, cable television came along, mm -hmm. and I was I had a project where I worked with, with the Episcopal Diocese of Cleveland to study uh, the uh, governing of of cable television, mm -hmm. and there was an opportunity at that point to make that a civic project. Mm -hmm. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily commercial, and uh, very quickly players came into the system who realized that the worst thing for them would be publicly funded cable, like publicly funded television, which was sort of starting, and that they could make a lot of money off of controlling the game, essentially. And that's what happened in the cable television industry. And I kind of watched and it happened. You know, there was, it's, there seemed to be this huge tide and I think the same thing happened in California with Facebook and the other social media because suddenly people uh, there's a lot of libertarianism around about media governing theoretical <laughs> yes and they don't want to be governed in any way about this and so basically there hasn't been much social input in a broader sense, into social media, mm -hmm. um, which is, is something that we don't really pay much attention to. I mean, like the idea, I don't think most people would have had any trouble guessing where Mark Zuckerberg spent the night before he testified. He didn't have to tell us that. And he doesn't feel responsible to anybody. And, you know, and we have glorified him. There's a movie about him, which social media, which I saw, and I thought, Oh, this guy is so clever, and he beat those other guys, and the president of Harvard gave him a hand. And you know, it's the whole, we, we're not very conscious of the systemic forces that feed into this that we're kind of ignoring. We just want to decide which presidential candidate we like the best. Right. Let me, let me follow up on that, because um, as I was doing, this is also part of things that I'm doing for my doctoral. So I've got a lot of information in my head that isn't, wasn't there. But I, I want to make you aware of a few things. When we click accept on Facebook's terms of service, Twitter's terms of service, um, it, 
it's important to know that we're explicitly agreeing um, to be part of experiments that they're conducting. And I know that um, Facebook um, had a uh, an experiment recently. Seven hundred thousand of their users. They were they pushed um, negative input into uh, half of the feeds and positive input into some of the feeds, and then I, they had a control group of some, probably everybody else. And um, because they wanted to see um, if they could determine people's mental health after having done that. Um, and sure enough, the people who had had negative information pushed into their feed reported, self-reported in their posts that they were feeling depressed and alienated and you know sad and all these other things and got divorced. And um, meanwhile, people who had had the positive things felt better and they were happier and they had a good year or whatever. Um, and under every other circumstance in, in our history, well, after a certain point when we discovered we really needed informed consent to do um, uh, studies on humans, we've had informed consent and there's an ethical panel that determines whether your project is acceptable. Facebook is excluded from that because we already consented to their to whatever testing that they should choose to do on us, and they don't have to tell us anything because we said it was fine if we, if we have a, a Facebook account and use it. So there's a lot in there that's like that, and um, you, before the class began, talked about the, the capitalism, the, the issue of capitalism. What's the name of the book? Well, the book that I'm reading is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, Z-U-B-O-F-F, and it, it's a very fat book. I don't think I'll get through it, but um, it is about um, our economy, uh, and she, she does go into our economy briefly through the age, through the decades, but now um, everything is depending on getting information about us to make us buy things. And well, she says many, many, many other things. Right. I didn't bring the book because it's so fat and so yeah. heavy. I just wanted I to recommend it. To lift up, I mean, that's the, this has, um, you have to pick some entry point. So this is about the social media and the, the psychological tools to keep you engaged, but if if capitalism weren't the driver, if it weren't about making money and the only way to make money being keeping your attention, then these issues would have a lot more um, flexibility to be addressed. I we only have about five more minutes, so I do hope that we can talk a little bit about this. So there are things we can do. First of all, with this information, you can make choices. Um, I think you mentioned, Mary, that you're only on a social media for like an hour a day. And if you and that really does make a big difference, even if it's you're still thinking it has effects. If you decide, okay, because of my work, I need to do Facebook at this time, I'm gonna do it every day at this time, and then I'll get off and I won't check it, I don't have it on my phone, I'm not gonna have any push notifications. You know, you can make some choices as especially as adults with with our brains are always growing. We are always changing our neural network. So in that respect, we are not that different from children. But for those of you who have children and grandchildren, this information becomes even more important because once upon a time, we thought of it as sort of um, a morality play about um, what communications are acceptable, right? Um, and it's we don't want our children to text. We want them to talk on the phone or whatever. But actually, 
even though they can create um, connections with, with amazing people in amazing places, and you can hook up with your high school friend that you haven't seen in 40 years, um, the question of how the neural development of children and, and similarly their ability, this part was hidden in there, it got split. You can't make medium and long-term plans without the capacity and the free time to do so. So if all of our free time <laughs> suddenly goes to like, oh, I'm waiting for the train, you know, um, even that can reduce that sort of open space time that allows us to think more clearly and then make those medium and long-term goals. So if we consider it not about, oh, our, you know, oh, this technology is bad because I prefer some other way of interacting with people, but rather, how might this affect their ability to thrive in the world? How can we use the technology in a, in a useful way and steer them to a um, <laughs> fully capacitated brain? That's an important conversation to have, right? Having said that, there are still those futurists who imagine that we are going to become you know, part machine, part human in the relatively near future. So maybe they're just that much further down the road. Um, I'm not willing to bet that yet. <laughs> I'm not seeing it in this generation. But um, I want to make sure you have time to transition. Any last thoughts that you want to add before we? I know. Yes. Um, but it has to be a little bit brief. Okay? Yeah. So I was just thinking. There's this. There's two, two, two people that I thought about also when we were going through this. Um, both of which I saw passages from. Um, one is Plato. So Plato in the Republic, when he's talking about the, the cave, right? It's a situation where there's this passage where he talks about the fact that, um, you know, sort of even the echoes of the truth, you know, like they're hearing the echoes off the wall, and, and those echoes, if they're repeated enough, you know, so if you take a lie, and if it's repeated enough from person to person to person to person, at some point it becomes the truth. Like talks about that in the Republic in terms of like media. Um, and then the other one is this guy, um, Jean Boriard. And um, Boriard talks about basically postmodernism is considered like, and how it's a situation where like, for the most part, the postmodern era, at some point, it's a situation where they prefer, you know, the, the simulacrum or like the the, the 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 digital world over the actual yeah. like real life world, you know, and that's sort of where we go to in terms of like the fact that we want to actually emulate, you know, what we see in the digital world in real life versus it being what it is, which is a fictional, right? A fictional, pretty up version that uh, over which we often have a great deal of control, right? Which is another human tendency. Any other last thoughts or comments? For those of you who, how many of you missed the, the actual presentation? Because I, if you would like, I can email it to you. Um, yes, I'd be glad to. I, I tell you what, uh, da, 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 why don't you do this? Email me and I'll email you out the videos for you. And for anyone else um, who would like the NATO report, um, Again, just email me and I'll send that out as well. Um, it's all interesting stuff.
Um, the name Marshall McLuhan comes to mind. Yes, Marshall is, yeah, it's funny, he's one of the places where I started my research, but he was quite a while back now, And but his, the, his heirs, um, uh, and if you're really interested, uh, Douglas Rushkoff is one of the most popular heirs, um, because even um, the person who wrote Entertaining Art, Neil Postman, is pretty yeah. backdated at this point. I mean, the media is just changing so much, um, and we have like less than one minute. Uh, there's a book by Deborah Tannen in the 1990s, The Algorithm Culture. Uh -huh. I wrote to Deborah Tannen at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. I said, since your book, uh, publication 1996, what has changed in your opinion in American media and uh, communications? She says, sorry, I don't have time to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yes, so much has changed. <laughs> So thank you all for being here this morning. Um, this is, uh, there's lots of information as well that beyond what I showed this morning, but um, if, if you want to follow up those um, videos, I'll be glad to send them. I just love to think that we can continue this conversation and come at some point to some discussion of what it means personally to our church and our, you know, Well, like I said, this is part of my doctoral work. So that's, so I'm developing on that side. But um, I will be doing, this is uh, December, in January, Elizabeth um, will be, Hutchinson will be doing this session, and then I'm coming back in February, and I will be doing something that at least um, lays on top of this, for those of you who are interested. Um, this is always an anti-oppression space. Uh, I, Elizabeth will be talking about white fragility um, at the next session, and then we're gonna be talking about social ills that are uh, how, how this kind of thing either can we can start to shape towards letting our social media help us or the ways that it really 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 is a problem for us That's the thank you all thank you. Thank you. I didn't, that's a good thought i can't throw it